evening. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a pleasure it is to both begin and end the Lord's Day together in worship of our great God. Here I'm call us to worship from Nehemiah chapter 9. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 89, Come Thou Almighty King. Amen. Please be seated. Let's join together in a season of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the heavenly hosts, the beasts of the sea. All that walks upon the earth, you have made them and you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. We have gathered to worship you. You alone are God. You chose Abram and you brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the promised land. And you are a God who keeps your promises. For you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our spiritual fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. 
You knew that they acted arrogantly against our forefathers and you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the Red Sea so that your people walked across on dry land and you drowned the pursuers in their depths. You led your people by day in a pillar of cloud. You led them at night in a pillar of fire and showed them which way to go. You came down and met with your people at Mount Sinai, giving them the statutes and commandments. You made known to them what you required of them. We're thankful, Father, that you are this God, constantly reaching out, constantly caring for your people. And in spite of the ways that our forefathers sinned against you, In spite of the ways that we have sinned against you, you remain steadfast and true to your promises. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You will be faithful to a thousand generations of those who love you and keep your commands. Father, we confess that we are unworthy of such love. We do not deserve the grace and mercy which you have so lavishly poured out upon us. We are humbled at the idea that Christ, the sinless one, would die in our stead and bear the weight of our sin upon him, that we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High, recipients of eternal life and joy and peace and every spiritual blessing that is found in Christ Jesus. Father, it is overwhelming to know the depths of your love and And as much as we know about you and about your love, it only scratches the surface. We know that one day we will see even more and understand even greater the incredible depth and width and height of your love for us. Father, we are thankful for the men and women of years past, of generations that have come and gone who were faithful to you whom you caused to persevere in the faith and set the example before us, to pass the baton to us that we might carry it forward to generations to come. We ask that we would also be a faithful generation, that we would be faithful to your word, obedient to your commands, that people would see Christ in us as we live our lives and share the gospel and do the work you have prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world. Father, we know know that we need your help to do that. As we were reminded this morning, our spirits are often willing, but our flesh is very weak. So we ask for strength, for confidence, for assurance in our faith, that we would be bold to step out into the world you have called us to, calling men and women, children and grandfathers and grandmothers to faith in Christ. Father, we pray for those who continue to battle illness and sickness in this congregation. We ask that you would comfort them in their trials. We ask that you would give their caretakers wisdom and patience and kindness as they minister to their physical needs. And we ask that you would continue to raise up those who would pray for them and with them that they would not only have their physical needs attended to, but that their spiritual needs would be met. Father, we ask that this church would continue to be a church 
from which the gospel sounds forth and resounds across Tallahassee and this land. We pray that this would not be the only church that does that, but that all of the brothers and sisters in Christ here and in town would be like a thousand barking dogs and great peals of thunder as the gospel proceeds throughout our city. We know that there are men going all over the world taking your gospel to to foreign lands, and we ask your continued blessing upon their work. May they be encouraged and see the fruit of their labors, if only just a taste in this life. And we pray that you would continue to fill your courts with thanksgiving and that people would continue to enter your gates with praise. We long for every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be represented in your kingdom. And we are humbled that you would use men and women like us to do the great work of your kingdom. Lord, we ask that tonight as we worship you, we would worship you in spirit and in truth setting aside the things of this world and rejoicing in your kingdom. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. This is going to be a familiar passage to you, no doubt. We'll read verses 19 through 31. Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. Let's stand together and join in the doxology.
Please be seated. We'll now join together in reciting the Nicene Creed, which you can find on the front cover of your blue Trinity hymnal. This creed, originally composed at the Council of Nicaea in year 325, has been used for millennia to confess what we believe as Christians. It answers that simple question, Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his fathers before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Be Thou My Vision, which you'll find on the front side of the handout. Let's stand and join together in song.
Amen. Please be seated. Our sermon passage this evening comes from Psalm 49, so I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Psalm 49, we'll read the entire psalm together. Psalm 49, this is God's word to us. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Amen. In my career as a Navy chaplain, I have stood at the graveside of a man or woman nearly 800 times. I've done almost 800 funerals in my career as a Navy chaplain. You gain an interesting perspective when you go to that many funerals and attend that many funerals. The things that are said about a man make it clear whether he was a fool or whether he was wise. And there's a stale emptiness at the funeral of a man who devoted his life to this world. This psalm, Psalm 49, lays out two paths for us. The path of foolishness and the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom is to hope not in wealth and power which evaporate at death, but to hope in the mercy of our gracious God. And what you'll notice as we go through this psalm is that there's an implicit comparison 
through this psalm. The psalmists are going to lay out these truths by describing what I'm calling the self-made man. So the psalmists are going to describe a man for us. I'm calling him the self-made man. And behind that comparison, you'll see what the opposite man is like. And I'm calling that man the God-made man. The self-made man will see clearly, and behind that description we'll see the God-made man. So here's what I want us to consider in Psalm 49. The character of the self-made man, the religion of the self-made man, the end of the self-made man, and then the psalmists will close by answering the question, so what? The character, the religion, the end of the self-made man, and then we'll answer the question, so what? Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. It's a specific type of psalm in a specific type of Hebrew genre called wisdom literature. So you know other wisdom literature in the Old Testament. The Proverbs are wisdom literature. The book of Job is wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, those are books which fall into the genre of wisdom literature. Psalm 49 follows that pattern. And there are three primary characteristics of wisdom literature that always pop out, and here they are. Firstly, having wisdom means keeping in harmony with God's created order in all spheres of life. Keeping harmony with God's created order in all spheres of life. That is the natural sphere, the moral sphere, the spiritual sphere. And those who are truly wise manage their lives with respect to that order. And that's the first characteristic of wisdom literature. Secondly, wisdom literature lays out always two distinct paths. One path is the way of the wise or the righteous. And the other path is the way of the fool or the wicked. So two paths, the way of the wise versus the way of the fool, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. And we'll see that in Psalm 49. And then finally, the third characteristic is that the fear of the Lord is both the beginning and the end of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning and the end of wisdom. Now, Psalm 49, you'll notice in the superscription at the beginning of the psalm before verse 1, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, who are these guys, the sons of Korah? They've written several psalms in the Psalter. They were a group of Levites who were in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. That was their responsibility, the sons of Korah. They were to be in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that they have written several psalms that are included in the canon for us. And they open this psalm in a familiar way with wisdom literature, with a call to hear. Notice verses 1 through 4. They say, hear this, all peoples. They're ringing the bell, trying to make sure you're paying attention. Hear, hear, I have something for you to pay attention to. And notice that they answer the question, who is to hear? It's not just the believer in this psalm. It's all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, both rich and poor, together. Listen up, is what the psalmists are saying. 
Now, what are we supposed to listen for? They answer that in verses 3 and 4. They're going to tell us what wisdom is. They're going to tell us what understanding really is. They're going to give us a proverb and an answer to a riddle. And that's wisdom literature for you. So they open the psalm with that intro. And then they launch into this idea of the self-made man, beginning in verse 5. So let's consider this guy for a little bit tonight. And let's begin by examining his character. So look at verses 5 and 6, which describe for us the character of the self-made man. The psalmist writes, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Five things describe the self-made man's character here. First, he causes trouble in verse 5. He's a troublemaker. Secondly, his life is defined by iniquity. It's defined by iniquity. Thirdly, he's a cheat. Fourthly, he trusts in his wealth in verse 6. And finally, he is boastful of the abundance of his riches. He causes trouble, is defined by iniquity, he's a cheat, trusts in his wealth, and is boastful of the abundance of his riches. He's a real stand-up guy, isn't he? It reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler. Doesn't it remind you of him in the New Testament? He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know what to do. Obey the commandments. Now Jesus is sort of playing a game with him, right? Go on. Obey the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, oh, I've done all that. And I've done that since my youth. And he says, okay, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He turns away. He can't do it. That's the self-made man here. And when we come to look at his character, it's easy for us to step back and examine or judge him as though it's not us. But if you look at those five characteristics, I guarantee you at least one of them describes you in some way. Which one is it? Maybe one used to describe you. Maybe all of them used to describe you. And we ought to see ourselves here. When we read this psalm, as we start to read the psalm, we ought to examine ourselves and find ourselves here, not so that we stay there, but that we listen to the call of the psalmist to hear wisdom and understanding so that we don't remain where the self-made man remains. The character of the self-made man is one defined by iniquity. Well, that's a great start to our psalm, isn't it? Now let's consider now the religion of the self-made man in the following verses, verses 7 through 9. What you'll notice about his religion is that he actually gets some things right. But he also gets some things very wrong. And that's really dangerous, isn't it? It's a mixture of rights and a mixture of wrong. And it's really hard for that to pull apart and figure out which is which. So let's consider the religion of the self-made man. Verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now three times in these three verses, the idea of ransom is mentioned. So the self-made man understands the idea of ransom. 
Now, what's interesting is that each of the mentions of ransom are three different Hebrew words. So the first word is found in the first half of verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another. That's the word pada. I mentioned that word to you because it's going to come up later in the psalm, pada. It means to make a payment to release someone from captivity. To make a payment to release someone from captivity. Now the second usage of this idea is found in the second half of verse 7. Neither can they give to God the price of his life. Now we don't see the word ransom there in English, but the Hebrew word is kofer, which means a ransom or the price of a life. So it's translated exactly that way, the price of a life. That's the idea of ransom, paying the price for someone's life. And then thirdly, at the first half of verse 8, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In English, that's the same word as in verse 7, isn't it? Ransom and ransom. But in Hebrew, that's the word pidyom. It's a different usage of the word. And so I think what the psalmists are trying to do is to give you this full picture of what ransom means, right? It means to ransom somebody from captivity. It means to pay the price for somebody's life. And the self-made man understands that concept. So he gets that aspect right. But look what he gets wrong in verse 7. He believes... That he can ransom another. And he believes that he can ransom himself. Now the psalmist says truly no man can do that. But the self-made man is thinking that. That he can ransom himself or he can ransom others. Now John in his opening chapter of his gospel makes it very clear that that's impossible. He says this. That we become children of God who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, that is, I can't make myself a child of God, nor of the will of man, that is, you can't make somebody else a child of God, but it's God who makes us his children. But the self-made man is putting his trust in his works, in his own righteousness, in his ability to save himself. Now, it's clear that he doesn't fully understand the concept of ransom because in verse 8, the psalmist say this. The ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. He doesn't truly understand the cost of the life. He doesn't grasp the great debt that he is in before God. And we do that ourselves, don't we? We underestimate the seriousness of our sin. We underestimate the great weight that caused Jesus to go to the cross. We underestimate the great transgressions we have committed against God. That's the religion of the self-made man. You get ransom, but you don't truly understand it. Finally, the self-made man in verse 8 is concerned with eternity. That's one of the things he gets right. He's concerned with eternity. He wants eternal life. He wants to live forever. He does not want to die. He doesn't want to go down to the pit. That's the Hebrew word sheol, which we see repeated in the psalm. The pit, the grave, the realm of the dead. He doesn't want to die. 
So he understands ransom. He understands eternity. But he doesn't understand the seriousness of his own sin. I remember explaining the gospel to a dear friend of mine who was not a believer many years ago. And as I explained the great double transposition of our sin onto Christ and his righteousness onto us, he replied to me, he said, I don't want somebody else to do that for me. I want to do it for myself. That's the religion of the self-made man. I want to do it myself. Let me tell you, you cannot do it yourself. It will require somebody else to do it for you. You cannot ransom yourself. You cannot ransom your children. You cannot ransom your parents. You cannot ransom your friends. Our sin is too great for us to do anything about it. But what's so great about this psalm is that we're not left there. There's an answer. There's a promise. There's a glimmer of hope. And we don't see it just yet. We've got to consider one more aspect of the self-made man before we get there. And that's the end of the self-made man in verses 10 through 14. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. The self-made man is well aware of his end. He's well aware of his impending death in verse 10. He's well aware that in spite of devoting his entire life, all of his efforts, all that he has to the pursuit of wealth, it's futile. It's vanity. He's aware of it in spite of devoting his life to it. In verse 11, he tries to live forever through his own efforts, though they called lands by their own names. You'll remember in the opening chapters of Genesis, the line of Cain continues on in that genealogy. And what does Cain do when he builds a city? He names it after his son. That's an attempt to live forever. That betrays the heart of the self-made man. He knows that his death is impending. How can he have eternal life? I've got to name something after myself. I've got to do something that will last longer than my own life. And the self-made man tries to live forever through his own efforts. In verse 12, the psalmist give us a stark description The end of the self-made man is that he dies like the beasts of the earth. Now, most beasts of the earth have a shorter lifespan than we do. So even from a young age, especially in this rural community, they're well aware of how quickly beasts die. It doesn't last long. And that's why throughout Scripture, we see our own lives described in that same way. It's like a vapor. 
that is gone as soon as the sun rises. The end of the self-made man is that he dies like the beasts of the earth. And then in verse 14, this language should begin to sound familiar to you because the sons of Korah are borrowing or hinting at another psalm. So I won't tell you what it is at first, but see if you can figure it out. In verse 14, Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Like sheep they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Their form will be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Did you catch a few of those key words that the psalmists are borrowing there? It's from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's not the case for the self-made man. The self-made man is shepherded by death. The self-made man has no place to dwell. When I was a young boy, one of the chores that was my responsibility was I had to clean out the gutters every fall with the leaves that got stuck in the gutters. And one fall I was up on the roof of the house clearing out the leaves and I didn't know it but in the gutter there was a wasp's nest that had been built. So I started to clear out the leaves from the gutter and I hit that wasp's nest and you know what happened. The wasps came out of that wasp's nest. And I was probably 10 years old at the time. And I started flailing my arms everywhere, trying to make sure the wasps didn't get to me. I was doing everything in my power I could to get away from those wasps. I was flailing my arms, backing up on the back of the roof. And I fell down as I was backing away from the wasps. So then my legs started flailing and my arms started flailing. Now my dad's down on the ground cracking up and having a great laugh at me trying to get away from these wasps. But I was doing everything and anything that I could to get away from those wasps. And that's what the self-made man is doing in his soul with death. He's doing anything and everything he can do to avoid it. To not think of it, to live forever, to do something on his own accord so that he doesn't have to face it. But he's well aware of his end. And yet he refuses to acknowledge God. Now here in verse 15 comes the hinge for the psalm. We've been kind of in a heavy area considering the self-made man. But verse 15 is the verse in the psalm that I want you to pay attention to because it swings the psalm in a different direction. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol and he will Receive me. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Those two opening words, but God. I love those two words in the scriptures. But God. And guess what word he uses here? It's the word that we mentioned earlier, pada. God will ransom. We saw that word back in verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another. He cannot ransom himself. But God can. 
And God does. And God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. That's Jesus. You wonder where Jesus is in Psalm 49? Let me tell you, he's right there in verse 15. Clear as day when we look back at it. Jesus ransoming for himself brothers and sisters. Now the last part of verse 15 says, For he will receive me. That word receive me shows up in an interesting place in the opening chapters of Genesis. Do you remember the man Enoch? Just a couple of verses about him. And it says, Enoch walked with God and God took him and he was no more. That's the same Hebrew word. Took, it's the same Hebrew word as receive here. Enoch walked with God and God received him. God will receive you. That's what the psalmist is telling you. Giving you this beautiful promise. Now why will God receive you? Not because you did better than the self-made man. But it's because God ransomed you. Christ ransomed you. He paid the price for your life. He paid the fee to get you out of captivity. Why will God receive you? Because he has ransomed you. This is a beautiful promise that you ought to have tattooed on your forehead. So that every morning when you get up and look in the mirror, you can see this promise. When you're struggling in doubt and you need assurance in your faith, you're wrestling with the truth of the gospel, this is a promise for you to remember. This is a promise for you to say to yourself, to remember what God has done and will do for you. Psalm 49, 15, don't forget it. Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. That's the hinge verse here in Psalm 49. We consider the character of the self-made man. We consider the religion of the self-made man. We consider the end of the self-made man. And man, that's not a great place to be. But God. Now the psalmists end this psalm with the final four verses by answering the question, so what? That's what every sermon should answer. The question, so what? Right? That's the application part of the sermon. So what? And there are four things that the psalmist apply, give you to help apply this to your life. And what's interesting about the final four verses is that they connect back to four verses from the earlier part of the psalm. So the first thing that they give to you is this admonition in verses 16 and 17, don't be afraid. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? It's one of the most given commands in all of Scripture. Don't be afraid. Now, what are they referring to specifically? Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. That ties back to verses 5 and 6. 
Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Why shouldn't I be afraid in that time? Because that man will carry nothing away when he dies. And his glory will not go down after him. In a word, that man is nothing. And he has made himself that way. So we need not be afraid when we find ourselves in those circumstances. Don't be afraid, the psalmists say. Secondly, don't believe the religion of you. Don't believe the religion of you in verses 18 and 20. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Don't believe in the religion of you. In verse 18a, temporal blessings do not equal eternal blessings. Temporal blessings do not equal eternal blessings. Jesus addresses this. Do you remember this parable that he says? A certain man built for himself a vineyard and he stored it up and he had great stores in his house. And he said to his soul, my soul, you have stored up for yourself great wealth. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, for you have much ample goods. And God says in that parable, you fool. Tonight, your life will be demanded of you. And what will you have? Temporal blessings do not equal eternal blessings. That's what the self-made man devoted his life to. But it does not equal eternal blessing. And in the last half of verse 18, the praises of men do not equal the praise of God. The praises of men do not equal the praise of God. It feels good when men praise you, doesn't it? But men don't always praise you for the right thing. We see that in our culture all the time. What is praised? What is ridiculed? What is held in high regard and what is thought to be worthless? The praise of men does not equal the praise of God. Don't believe in the religion of you. Thirdly, in verse 19, this is the application. Have eternal Eyes have eternal eyes. In verse 19, his soul, that is the self-made man, will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. This ties back to verse 11. The graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. His soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. He will join his fathers. That's not just talking about a biological connection. That's where his daddy is. That's where his granddaddy is. He's talking about his spiritual fathers. It's the type of language Jesus used when he spoke to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. And the self-made man will join his fathers. An interesting phrase in the Hebrew occurs in verse 19, the last half. It says, they will never again see light in the English. But in the Hebrew, it's more emphatic. It says this, if you were to translate it word for word. They shall never, always never see light. 
They will never, always, never see light. There's no second chance. There's no other way out. There's no hope once the life has ended. You will join his fathers and shall never, always, never see light. Now that's in stark contrast to what we read elsewhere in the psalm in verse 14, where it says, The death shall be their shepherd, but the upright shall rule over them in the morning. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. That morning is the eternal morning, the eternal dawning of light, everlasting light, eternal life. The upright will rule over them in the morning as opposed to he who dwells always, never to see light. Have eternal eyes. Fourthly and finally, the psalmist answered the question, so what? By saying in verse 20, for the second time, man in his pomp, yet without Understanding is like the beasts that perish. What is the fourth admonition? Get understanding. Get wisdom. Understand the proverb. Find the answer to the riddle. That's how they open the psalm in verses 1 through 4. How do you do it? Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. That's God calling to you. That's God calling to me. Listen up. Here it is. Get understanding. Get wisdom. That's why Solomon devotes nine chapters of Proverbs to getting and understanding wisdom as he opens that book. Get understanding. How? In God's word. Get understanding. It's right here for you. And the psalmist at the beginning of this psalm are clapping their hands, stomping their feet, waving their hands, getting you to pay attention. Here it is, my friends. Here it is. Listen to what is true wisdom. Now, if you were to summarize this psalm, you could do it with one phrase from another psalm, Psalm 146. When it's put in meter, you might recognize it. It says, put not your hope in princes, nor for help on man depend. He will die to dust returning and his purposes shall end. That's one way to summarize this psalm. But I think it's better to summarize it by the promises that are made in it. So instead of that negative note, which is true, let's end it on a positive note and hear the promises that God gives to you in this psalm. Do not fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat surrounds you, those who trust in their wealth and vast abundance of their riches, for the upright shall rule over them in the morning. God will ransom your soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive you. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we reflect upon this psalm and we see in it wisdom with a capital W, understanding with a capital U, that you have made known to us the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And you have made it abundantly clear. Let us not trust in our own devices, in our own wealth, in our own abundance, in our own ability to ransom ourselves from our sin. It's all vanity. It's all futile. And we are so prone to believe it is true. Forgive us for believing this false gospel. And help us to trust in the true gospel. The gospel of the Christ who ransoms us, who pays the price for our life, who pays the price to get us out of captivity to sin, and it gives us the honor and privilege of ruling and reigning with him in the morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll close with our hymn of response. Holy God, we praise your name. It's on side B of your handout. Let's stand together and sing.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.